Very lucky to be joined today by Andy Constant of Damp Spring Advisors. Thanks for having me, Jack. I appreciate the time. Andy has worked alongside some of the world's most legendary investors like Ray Dalio, Alan Howard. Andy, you know, I would want to ask you about your background, but I just have too many questions about macro, so we're going to have to zoom right into it. My first question, Andy, is this current environment, we're filming on March 17th, the day after uh, the FOMC meeting, is this current environment favorable or unfavorable for assets and why? My view is uh, right now it is um, quite favorable um, to own a portfolio of assets that is balanced for inflation and growth. Um, despite all of the uh, extremely um, concerning things going on in the marketplace regarding both of those topics. And of course, uh, regarding what we heard yesterday from the Fed. So it's favorable. Uh, why do you say that? And can you break down the different uh, factors, you know, expectations and the premium as well? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think what would be best is helped by starting with how I think about my framework for all investments. And that is um, based on four main drivers that I think are that I think I and most people believe are the main macro drivers, um, and that is uh, expectations for growth, expectations for inflation, um, and then I think the the thing that I think has been the most important thing over the last few years is ex, is uh, risk premiums and. Um, lastly, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but lastly, um, there's flow and positioning uh, because ultimately all of these things that we're talking about depend on people changing their positioning and their positioning may or may, may be already built or it may need to be shifted and those things create price changes. Um, and so my framework for risk premiums depends on two, these two factors. The first one being um, what I like to call is monetary conditions. It's a combination of monetary conditions. It's not technically that, but basically the way I define it is the supply of money and credit, which is essentially savings and the ability for savers to lever up and take additional risk and versus the supply. And so that's the demand for assets and the supply of assets and um, when you think about those two things, um, quantitative easing is a very interesting case where the supply of assets may not change, but the Treasury, buy, the Fed buying assets creates new money, essentially new purchasing power for assets, not actual printing money, but that's in the plumbing's part. Um, and QT is one in which there's um, now excess supply of asset of assets because the Treasury needs to issue bonds to fund the, the uh, roll-off of uh, the Fed's holdings. And so those things are, those supply and demand are under tension, and um, that's an important aspect of risk premium drivers. Um, the second bit is portfolio volatility. And so I look at portfolios, 60-40, risk parity, all-weather, the permanent portfolio, any, and, and for that matter, the market portfolio, which is all assets on earth, and say that um, when the, that portfolio is volatile, people naturally want to own less of it 
and to encourage people to buy what everyone else wants to sell, because remember, all assets are owned all the time by somebody. This idea that everyone's a seller is not true. There's every asset at the end of the, at, at, at any particular snapshot of time is owned by somebody. So to convince people um, when everyone says assets are very volatile and you know their future outlook for their portfolio is quite risky, they want to de-risk, somebody has to be encouraged to take on that risk. And they do that through the risk premium mechanism, meaning they get offered a deal, a, con a concession to lever up and buy assets. And that's what we've seen in the last two and a half months is people who see their portfolio experiencing high risk, high volatility, high drawdown, are um, paying a large concession by the increase in risk premium to those who are saying, yeah, that's very, very risky. I'm going to need to be compensated for levering up and buying what you're selling. So that's the dynamic that's happening. Down one level on that is um, portfolio volatility is impacted by individual asset volatility. So, you know, if you looked at the 10-year note in the last two weeks, it's gone from 2% to 1.67% to back up to 220. And I guess it's faded a little bit from there, but that's incredible individual asset volatility. Uh, the NASDAQ and certain participants in the NASDAQ and, and, and recent IPOs and SPACs, you know, they've had 60, 70% moves, the NASDAQ's down 20%. You know, those are some serious individual asset volatilities. So that's increasing portfolio volatility, regardless of who holds what. And then lastly, the correlation of those assets has increased. So if you look at bond yields or bond prices, bond prices and stock prices are down. Some portfolios own commodities and gold, but the average portfolio, there's just not enough of that for the average portfolio to own. The market portfolio is underweight, those sort of things, um, relative to the need to be, you know, hedge inflation. And that could change. But right now, so you saw some inflation, in some price increases in those which were uncorrelated or had negative correlation. But the 60-40 portfolio is getting crushed. Both things are down. And so a combination of higher correlation and high individual asset volatility has created a um, deleveraging of assets and the concessions for assets. And so that's the process that we've been under for a number of months. And my outlook is that that deleveraging is um, reaching its end at the same time that yesterday the Fed um, made clear what it's, um, through the dot plot and also in the presser, um, that it's you know supportive of the market pricing for um, long-term interest rates and short-term interest rates, which are you know peak at a 250 basis point increase in overnight rates um, next summer, the summer after next. And so we have extreme tightening priced in by the market, so confirmed by the Fed, a massive deleveraging where volatilities now are high, very high, and correlations have been very high. 
And to me, that adds up to probably a fairly good opportunity to take the other side and be paid the concession that is now offered in the market of, you know, 30-year bonds at 250 and um, equities at, a, you know, 18 PE or risk premiums that I tend to use risk premiums, risk premiums 125 basis points wider than they were a year ago. Those are attractive to me. Andy, what is your view on risk assets? You said over the next month or maybe a few months, you said you're bullish. What is your, I don't know, let's say a year outlook or, or longer out? Uh, so uh, I, would, I, would establish, I would establish three horizons for your question. There's the next month, which um, I'm, um, my positions are long um, assets, um, bonds, stocks. Uh, I don't have any gold right now. Um, for my alpha portfolio. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, then there's the second thing, which is my three to six month outlook. And I uh, would say that I'm in the midst of significant, really deeply analyzing in my most recent DSR, which will, DAF Spring Report, which will be posted on my website uh, over the weekend. And my subscribers have seen and, and hedge fund clients have seen earlier this month, this week, um, is really understanding the QT and all the mechanisms and levers at play. Um, and I will need to see information. May 2nd and 3rd are the big days for that. My outlook for the next three to six months will depend on the outcome of that data. And then there's long-term. And the answer to that is um, um, I am a believer in diversification across as many assets as you can find, across as many different countries as possible in a way that is that isolates you from idiosyncratic risk through diversification and um, the main drivers of macro through having balance to growth and inflation. Um, and there are lots of ways to express that. My prior firm used all weather, and that's obviously a product I think is great, but um, there are many, many ways of doing it. I have my own. Oh, yeah, I want to get, I want to close on the plumbing. And what, why is that the case? That all comes back to the idea of, of portfolios that around the world, local portfolios that local savers want and whether they're balanced or not. And European bonds don't provide balance. And, you know, more so today than they used to, but still, no, they don't provide balance in that if they're, they're an anti-growth, anti-inflation asset. And if both of those things happen, that there's lower growth than expected or lower inflation, they can't rally that much because they're already, you know, significant negative rates. Um, U.S. offers nominal bonds that have a fairly decent return, and so are decent expressions of anti-growth, anti-inflation assets that one needs in a balanced portfolio. Um, JGBs don't offer that, and so I think there's a you know just so how do you act when you don't have balance? You reduce your portfolio, and so Japanese savers, European savers, and any saver from other countries that would want to invest in in Japan or Europe can't invest much because they can't get good balance. And so they look to countries that have balance. And um, though China has a lot of um, lately and always political risk, the only real places that you can find balance in a portfolio of you know, bonds, stocks, commodities, and, you know, and hard currencies is um, China and the United States. And so, you know, I'm pretty bullish on um, 
those currencies for that reason. And that especially makes a lot of sense in the bond world where Japanese government bonds, JGBs, essentially earn zero and the you know, 30 year you know, uh, uh, earns 2%. Andy, you have done a ton of work on the plumbing of the monetary system and the quantitative tightening that will soon be upon us, as well as how the U.S. Treasury, not the Federal Reserve, but the U.S. Treasury will respond to that by shaping its, its issuance. How is it going to fund the U.S. deficit? What's going on with the Treasury general account? And it's it's so complex. Uh, you know, I, I'm barely uh, wrap, able to wrap my head around it. But how about you walk us through the different scenarios of how quantitative tightening will, will play out and how uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen might use that to the advantage of the U.S. Treasury. Right. So this is what I wrote my um, damp spring report about. Um, that'll be on my website this weekend. That's at dampspring.com, D-A-M-P-E-D, spring.com. Um, and my clients have seen by now. Um, and it explains it with pictures, which are helpful, though they're complicated. Um, about three, maybe four months ago, I decided to create something called a QT tracker. No, I guess it was three months ago. I decided something called a QT tracker. And my first step in doing that was predict what the quantitative tightening would be and when it would start. And my base case was um, they'd announced it in the June meeting. Now that could have been moved up one, one month, maybe. Um, but my expectation was that they would start um, with roll down. Um, which is instead of reinvesting the proceeds of maturing bonds, they would invest in, um, they would um, um, let some expire and tear up the cash and let the bond, and that would be that. Um, and then I picked a quantity, um, which came with two parameters. One, my expectation of what the end balance sheet would look like and where it um, what it's sort of what a balance sheet would be to maintain adequate reserves in the system and um, foster long-term economic strength. Um, and then I looked at the difference and divided by numbers of numbers of months. And sort of that was my one way of determining the rate. And the other was looking at um, the process of QT in 2018 and how much we did. And what I've heard from the Fed chairman um, in multiple meetings and multiple and minutes is that he expects it to go faster and sooner, which is still around the July timeframe, maybe June. Um, and faster means more. Um, and so what's more? Well, the, I'd like to know what was max to, to answer that question. And their maximum quantitative tightening during 2018 was 50 billion. So, my logic is let's start with 50 billion, see how that goes. That's fast. That's as fast as they ever were. And then increase to 100, which is about my run rate to achieve the goal of around 5 trillion by, you know, three, four years from now. So that's my outlook. And so that's the first step was what, what do you think they're going to do? And then you have to compare that with what is maturing to see how many bonds are, they, if they can achieve that goal. And so the first thing was to look at um, what they hold and when it's maturing. And what I noticed is that sometimes it's bigger than 50 billion or 100 billion in certain cases, maturing each month, and sometimes it's less. And when it's more, it's pretty straightforward. They reinvest the proceeds of the difference between what they have, 
what the, what they're receiving in proceeds and their target. So say it's 50 and they're getting 60 billion of, of, of maturities, they reinvest 10. When it's lower, that's a different question. And that requires the Treasury, to, the, the Fed to actually sell into the market. Um, and so there are a couple of times, of course, the next year in which they're going to have to do that. Um, and the next level of the tracker is that um, what I've noticed is no mortgages really are rolling off. And um, mortgages are a very um, politically charged issue and represent a significant portion of the Fed's holdings. And they want to maintain that balance or, in fact, end up their end goal and their in their outlook is to um, have no mortgages. Well, treasuries are the things that are rolling off and mortgages aren't. So that means that any sales, sales they make in the marketplace are likely to be mortgages to get to that balance. And Andy, that's because unlike in 2018, the maturity profile of the Fed's treasury holdings now is shorter duration, right? So if the Fed wants to get mortgages off its books, it's going to have to sell mortgages actively instead of letting them expire. Or right. They bought a lot of very um, short-term bonds in the um, um, depths of 2020. Anyway, so $1.8 trillion is coming off, rolling off in the next two years. Uh, that provides more than enough of, of roll-offs so that they don't have to sell in the marketplace in most months. In some months they do. Um, but they have this mortgage problem. So it's possible that if they want to sell, if they want to have 50 roll off and they want 10 of it to be mortgages, but mortgages aren't rolling off, they'll sell 10. And instead of letting 50 treasury roll off, they'll only let 40 treasury roll off and reinvest the proceeds. So they're going to fool with that. And it's important for the mortgage market and the transmission market of the transmission method of mortgage uh, spreads to the real economy, um, but it's small. Um, the big issue is um, that every bond that they that rolls off, um, or that they sell, in, uh, any, every bond that rolls off, ultimately results in the U.S. Treasury issuing something that itself um, is a bond or a bill or whatever it might be to raise the proceeds. And they don't have the treasury there to buy it. They don't have the Fed there to buy it. Yeah. And and just to, to state the uh, obvious, Andy, when the reason that the treasury will have to issue another bond when the bond rolls off is because when the bond rolls off, the person who owns that bond is paid $100 on, on the dollar. To uh, f Yeah. So it's paid off. So they have to, they have to replace that. They have to, they have to issue. Um, so they're going to. Um, and that's the lever that Janet holds. And it's... Um, I go into detail about scenarios in which she does that, which may not be appropriate for this conversation. Up to you. Um, yeah. The um, what she chooses to sell really matters. If she sells bills, um, that has very little impact on risk premium. So that's a meaningful lever that Janet Yellen can literally choose to use whenever she wants by shifting the quantity of bills she issues to, versus bonds. Bills don't hurt assets and are funded by the RRP. Bonds do hurt assets um, and are funded by the marketplace. And so those are two scenarios. You can take it for what they are worth. 
and no one knows whether she'll use that um, lever, I am certain that she knows she has it. Both her undersecretary of the treasury, who was a colleague, a very close colleague, um, who I worked literally side by side with for two years, Brian Smith is a uh, is the is responsible for the TBAC and the issuance and literally signs his name to the form. Um, and Janet, who is a and learned QT and QE from Ray, and Janet, who is an ex-chairman of the Fed, know that they can adjust the issuance and have an impact on asset prices. Uh, the question is, will they? Um, and there are political reasons why, there's guidelines reasons why, though the guidelines are for normal times and this is anything but normal. Um, but there are economic reasons why issuing bills is risky, meaning if interest rates, short-term interest rates go up, you end up having a higher cost of financing than if you had issued long-term. And political reasons in that if you are perceived as, if QT is perceived as being a strong inflation fighter, and you, by issuing bills, are essentially sterilizing its effect, you could be perceived as being at cross purposes to your stated goal of fighting inflation and the Fed's stated goal of fighting inflation. And so there's some political and economic reasons not to do it. All I say is it exists, and we will know. The great thing about it is we'll know. And you just have to know the date, and that date will be May 2nd when the next quarterly refunding announcement comes out. And as you jump through that and the projected funding is de described in both the bills issuance and treasury issue, coupon issuance, that'll give you a sense of how big those bars are and what, whether that, uh, and what that means to asset prices. And so I don't know. I'm just pointing out the lever. I'm not pointing out whether she will or she won't. In fact, my DSR is literally called, will she or won't she? Um, because that is the question. But, and the odds are she won't. She won't pull the lever. And that means that what's discounted may not be enough for assets and why I may turn quite bearish assets if she doesn't. But if she does, that'll be a surprise. And if, she, a lot of that's over my head, but if she does and she funds a lot of the deficit via issuing short-term bills, which is then uh, absorbed by the reverse repo program, what are, what's the, what are the knock-on effects of that? What are, why would she do that and what are the consequences? So um, there's two things. One, it's very supportive of assets and so risk premiums um, because there's l less coupon bonds to compete with all the other assets, that's supportive of assets. Um, and it does, because assets are supported and don't crash, the wealth effect continues to drive inflation higher. If you crash, the reason why QE work, QT works, the mechanism is through the wealth effect. Um, and the wealth effect is, depends on asset prices being high. And if the wealth effect, if people get less wealthier, they get less demand for goods and you start seeing a um, fall in, um, in, in inflation. And that's the negative. If she, if she does and, it, and inflation continues to go up, that's quite concerning um, given her political mandate. So the market's a little bit on edge. I, I think an easy way to see that would just to be look at the VIX. 
Can you tell us why has the risk premia expanded and to what degree does that have to do with the Fed tightening monetary policy, both by hiking interest rate on the short end as well as quantitative tightening, reducing the size of its balance sheet? The basic driver of higher vol has certainly been a contributing factor to the higher portfolio vol, which is a combination of correlation and individual asset vol, has been a driver. And um, um, expectations of quantitative tightening, which to me is the most important forward-looking driver for risk premiums, um, have been... um, uh, mark, risk premiums have been marked up based on front running of those flows. Sorry, when you say when you say expectations of quantitative tightening, how do you measure that? Right. So I think the best way to the best thing to point at as a catalyst is, and I noticed this on December fifteenth. Um, on December fifteenth, I said that uh, the Fed meeting that was happening, and there was a press conference, and the press conference said, um, Jay Powell said at the press conference that uh, they were looking at the balance sheet. With the balance sheet, we did have a balance sheet discussion. It's our sort of a prelim- first a first discussion of of balance sheet issues today. Sheet issues uh, at, at our meeting this week. Um, and he didn't say quantitative tightening. He didn't say anything. He just said we're looking at the balance sheet. Um, and I immediately tweeted, and I think I was the first one in my bubble of tweets um, to point this out that that was a game changer. Um, in, on December 29th, I wrote a damp spring report to s- sent to my clients, and that was um, talked about QT, the drumbeat of QT, and how that drumbeat of QT was going to cause the market to peak um, for the year in January. And then on the 3rd or the 4th um, of January, the minutes came out. And all of a sudden, no one had anything on their mind but quantitative tightening. And that narrative became the narrative, frankly, surprising me how aggressive it was. And I started buying the dip on that, even though I had a full view that quantitative tightening was a game changer. Um, So that was rough to sort of be right on what was happening, but also be wrong in the way to trade it. but that's corrected over the last few months, so we'll see. Um, but nonetheless, it's a game changer. And so what I said at the time was that um, the front running process was probably going to take around 50 to 75 basis point increase in uh, risk premium, driving 30-year notes out to 225 and driving um equities below, I think I said 4,400, maybe it was 4,500, but you know, a significant sell-off as we approach quantitative tightening. That front running, because again, quantitative easing was happening until a few days ago. Um, That front running took risk premiums out double what I expected. Now, part of that was that self-reinforcing mechanism of a deleveraging, which I overlooked, but nonetheless, on February 14th, um, I sent around a uh, my current DSR, which is posted on my um, Twitter feed um, and my website, um, that said um, risk premiums had um, bottomed. That in the 2018 tightening, the 2011 tightening, the 2013 
um, taper tantrum, and in the 1994 tightening, which are all the tightening cycles we've really had, um, that risk premium expansion as those tightenings were between the shift from the announce the taper tantrum day for the next three months, that risk premiums um, bottomed somewhere around the first month, second month, and started recovering as the actual tightening happened. Um, and so you look at that and you compare that to the risk premium expansion we've seen in this day and age, and they seem to have bottomed in late February, they, they, mid-February. They retouched that bottom after the war was, the invasion happened. And again, I think that's the volatility mechanism, not the QT mechanism. And we're at a level where um, what I believe is QT is Q, rate rises, are fully discounted with what the Fed is expected to do and are high and are likely to bite into inflation. Even in 2023, you think you think the two and a half terminal rate is not low or not high or, or you don't really have a view on it? It's in line and no one knows. That's on the right path. Do we think, could it be 50 basis points more or 50 basis points less? For sure. No one knows. Um, and that's the why I've always believed and still believe the Fed is um, incremental and expects their actions to operate with a lag. And I think most importantly, you know, those things, the Fed doesn't have to do a thing. I mean, they do have to match expectations, but the tightening has already occurred. The Fed raising rates each meeting doesn't make a difference if the rates are already that high on an expectations basis. Um, so um, we'll see if it's enough to cause inflation to go down. The uh, supply side issues around, and you mentioned risk, but the supply side issues around the war, wheat and oil, um, around um, you know the craziness you've seen in some uh, base metals, um, the ESG, you know our our supply side constraints. You also have an ESG thing that is, you know, keeping capacity for oil production tight. Um, which can, can extend the supply constraint, even if the war resolves. Um, and you have the demand from ESG for sustainable uh, uh, materials, and those sustainable materials need to conduct electricity. So there are some commodities that I think have a structural um, demand and supply thing that isn't going to change with change much even with Fed rate, rate changes. So those are interesting sub-commodities. But the wages is the thing we have to watch. And the wages um, will rise. Um, will they rise as much as oil? I doubt it. Um, will they rise on a real terms? We'll see. Depends on the leverage that wage earners have versus capital owners, companies versus their employees. Um, but the Fed gets how to impact demand and is doing what it needs to do to impact demand. So they may control the wage price spiral, we'll see. But again, they're incremental. So that brings us all the way back to, um, you know, risk premiums are very, very wide. What are they at now, Rough, roughly, what are they at? Call it 100 basis points instead of 125. Wider, um, uh, so the level of risk premiums, no one knows. The change of risk yeah. premiums are a little bit more easy to establish. 
and they've widened by about 125 at the at the lows, the way I measure it, and they're back. They've retraced about 25 basis points of that move. Okay, and, and if I can, you know, I have a pretty basic, very uh, you know, uh, pretty basic understanding of equity risk premiums. I think you have your 30-year Treasury bond. Let's just say it has a yield of two percent. That's kind of like a price-to-earnings ratio of 50, right? So uh, Apple at 30 price to earnings may seem expensive, but 30 is cheaper than 50, and Apple actually grows its earnings, unlike a, a treasury bond. However, you have to Apple is volatile; it can go up and down. You know, lots of crisis; it won't be affected. So you have to build in a risk premium on top of that to compensate you for that risk. So that's equity risk premium. Then there's also a bond risk premium. You know, you said that oh, in '94, all, all, you mentioned all these tightening cycles. You said risk premiums exploded. I'm curious, did it also do that for duration? Because normally, like during bad times, bonds do actually really well and bond yields go down. Like from, I'm, I'm going to take a guess, you know, from January 2020 to March 2020, uh, uh, risk premiums exploded higher, driving stock prices down. But bonds did really well. So what's the what? what how do you think about bond uh, uh, risk premiums here too? I'm trying to think of the best way to tackle this. Let's start with this. Bonds go down when growth falls. Stocks go up when growth rises. Sorry, bonds go down when growth rises, bond prices go down, bond yields yes. go up when, um, when growth rises. Stocks prices go up when growth rises. So that means they have negative correlation. So what happened in 2020, uh, 2020 is growth went to zero and so stocks fell and um, bonds saw growth going to zero so they rallied. So that was the primary driver is an expectation of future growth. Um, but that doesn't mean that other things weren't happening at the same time. That was the primary driver. The secondary driver was risk premiums on both were going um, up. So the, the fall in equities was a combination of negative growth outlook and risk premium, multiple expansion, a multiple contraction, which is risk premium expansion. So double whammy on equities. Bonds had the primary driver was a tailwind, but the secondary driver was a headwind. And so they could have gone up more, but for the risk premium expansion. So let me now step back and just say, what, what am I talking about? So anything that's not cash has a risk premium. And the reason it has a risk premium is if you give somebody cash today, and they give you something that is not cash, if you need cash tomorrow, you have to sell the thing for, to somebody else for cash. And so between those today and tomorrow, you experience market risk. So all you have to have is market risk to have a risk premium. And so now the question is, um, how would you expect risk premiums to behave? Now we have to say, if I look at the entire world of investments right now, what's my operating assumption? My operating assumption is that they're all fairly priced. And the reason is, is because that's the price. And, you know, everybody knows everything that can be known. Now, it may not be true at the margins and alpha is where you can find that discrepancy. But by and large, if you don't assume that the market price is the correct price, I think you have a humility problem. Um, so my operating assumption is that in that the that the world's assets are all at the proper price, 
And so if that's the case, what would you expect their return on risk to be? You'd expect their return on risk to be exactly the same. So again, sharp ratio is one way of measuring risk. I don't want to get into that rabbit hole, but whatever it is, your return versus this amorphous concept of risk has to be the same. Because if it wasn't, and one asset had a higher expected return versus risk, money would flood into that asset and leave the asset with the lower return relative to risk. So, okay, so here we are. All assets have the same risk-adjusted return. That must mean that their risk premiums scale with their volatility because what you earn when you buy an asset is the risk premium. You don't earn because you happen to pick growth being up when you bought stocks and growth was up. That's not why you earn. You earn because you've given somebody your cash and they've given you an asset. And because all assets are perfectly priced, the only return that that cash person should give you is your return on risk and it should be constant across all assets. And so if you want to look at, and this is, you know, risk parity targeting, risk parity strategies use this concept to say, um, okay, equities are twice as volatile as 30-year bonds and they have the same expected return on risk. That means um, to have the same risk in each asset, you have to have twice as many bonds as you have stocks to earn the same return. So anyway, that's the long and short of, um, you know, how do I think about bond um, and any other asset for that matter, um, risk premium, it has to do with their um, risk, their relative risk. So, you know, in the spectrum, three-year bonds, lower risk premium than 10-year bonds, lower risk premium than 30-year bonds. Corporates of those maturities have a higher risk premium than each of those things. High yield has a higher risk premium than each of those things. Equities fits in there somewhere. Um, certain equities have a lower risk premium than others, um, depending on their volatility, which is you know combination of market and idiosyncratic volatility. Uh, meme stocks have a particularly high. Crypto may have a high risk premium, um, and so um, that's how I think about overall risk premiums. And the important thing is not. How do you figure out which risk premium is um, what is to say that all risk premiums have to generate a risk adjusted return that is the same or else money will flow to the arbitrage of the differences. And so um, that's why I say risk premium, just because the Treasury, for instance, is going to have to sell more bonds and the Fed isn't there to buy them because they're reducing their balance sheet, means that you'd think the risk premium on treasuries would expand. Makes sense, they're more sellers than buyers in the classic sense. So the buyers to lever up need uh, to sell something else or borrow. But of course that would mean that it, when that concession is paid to those new bondholders, those new bondholders now own an asset that has a higher expected return on risk than any other asset, which would mean money would flood to them selling something else. 
So the risk premium expansion that you might see in treasuries would then flow to the risk premium in all assets. So now risk premiums will expand via quantitative tightening. If you believe that, what, why do you or why are you bullish on on assets? So that's a good question. Um, you know, I thought that what the way it, the process would work is that risk premiums would expand um, after QE ended in a front-running way before QT started, and then QT would continue to put pressure on risk premiums so that they would continue to expand um, um, as it started. Uh, and what happened, in my view, is that uh, the front running was extreme and took us to a level of risk premiums that I expected to be year-end level of risk premiums, with all of those things that we just talked about happening and the flows actually happening. Um, and so for now, um, I think that leaves an opportunity before we know the final details of what quantitative tightening will be and what um, Janet Yellen can do with the lever she has to potentially sterilize some of that QT. Um, and so between now and May 2nd and 3rd, when we, get the when we get the final details of QT, which I expect we will get the, the framework they'll use to sell, maybe not the selling until June or July, but at least the framework in May. And at the same time, um, the Treasury uh, will re release its next quarterly refunding announcement, which will plot what they plan on selling in um, Q3. And the, that'll tell us what they're financing um, the quantitative tightening with. And that has a big impact on the, short, the, the 2022 and potentially beyond flows um, for assets, those, those details. And so, you know, between now and then, I like assets because they've already front run a f what I think is a extens extended risk premium expansion. Um, and that risk premium expansion um, is, doesn't have immediate pressure on it from a monetary condition standpoint, meaning QT isn't started and is, um, has resulted from a significant amount of portfolio deleveraging associated with rising vol and higher correlation. And I don't think either of those two last two things are sustainable. And so there's going to be a re-leveraging phase um, through the end of March into April, and I'm bullish for the next month. Um, and then we'll see in May how serious the QT um, is, what the details are. Um, one thing I don't think is on the table much anymore is um, the Fed rate path. Um, I think that's well-priced. And though we're going to get a blazing hot inflation number um, next month because of the war and the supply side issues. Um, and so I guess you could get a little bit of, of movement in um, the path. Um, the path is fairly well established right now. And to me, that doesn't con I don't consider that as big a risk factor. What I do consider a huge risk factor are the details around QT. Okay, so the hiking that's been priced into the market via forward guidance, and, and by the way, Andy, I always like uh, when people refer to this because forward guidance is the name of my podcast. Uh, when, when central bankers say something and that they cause the market to 
tighten monetary policy or, or, or loosen monetary policy for the Fed. So the Fed doesn't actually have to pull the lever themselves. That has done, if you look at a forward rates curve, a Fed funds futures curve, a euro dollar curve. And we had the, the dot plot out with, I think, 2.3 or wait, sorry, was it 2.8? 2.8 was the 2023 median um, projection, which is slightly actually above the roughly two and a half uh, uh, percent that's hiked into the terminal rate. Andy, if I'm sort of extrapolating from your view, you think that the I, I, because I've listened to your other work and read your stuff, I know that you, you think on fundamentals uh, uh, earnings are going to be solid. So you're not worried, super, super worried about that. In, in the monetary world, you think most of the monetary shocks have already been priced in. And th- I infer from that, you think that the Federal Reserve won't shock the market again, like it has shocked the market over the past three months. And if I'm extrapolating from that, that means there won't be another inflation shock. You know, uh, March's CPI, which will be released in April, that will be, as you say, red hot because of commodity shocks. But you don't think that inflation will be continue to to explode higher like it has over the past uh you know over a year now um so i guess andy let's talk about inflation your views there why do you think it it is transitory uh perhaps we can talk about you know personal uh uh, real wages inflation adjusted wages and i also want to throw a little bit of curveball at you andy what you said risk premium the ultimate at at the holy grail the top of the pyramid is cash because cash has no risk but if inflation is running at eight percent a year cash, you know, you do have that risk. And if, if, you know, the producer price index just came in at 10%, if I'm, if I, you know, I work in manufacturing, I have my own business, I'm losing 10 the risk is of having cash is I'm losing 10% a year. So I've got to deploy that cash. So, so how does that factor into your analysis? Yeah. Let me deal with the last thing first. Um, sustained six, seven, eight, nine, 10% inflation. Um, no financial asset's going to do well, except literally things that are linked to inflation, like um, like uh, commodities and um, not even gold necessarily, but commodities and um, and tips. Um, and the job, and you, you're right to say that, gosh, cash isn't a great place to be. Um, it reminds me of the story that's. I told was told by somebody who sat next to me who spent a lot of time in Brazil, uh, lived, grew up in Brazil and sat on the, the trading desk with me. And what he said is when you had a kid, you bought four bicycles, a bicycle for a three-year-old, a bicycle for a seven-year-old, a bicycle for a 10-year-old, and a full size. And you bought them all at once. If you had cash, you bought four bikes because deploying cash into physical goods that, you, that, that have a purpose in your future life is the only way to deal with inflation of that sort. You can't hold cash. You can't hold financial assets either because they don't keep up with inflation. So listen, that's a bad circumstance. And if so, you know, buy real, buy real stuff. Um, you know, even real estate is tough, but you want to buy assets that the only assets you can buy are assets that themselves earn nominal dollars. And that's, you know, a real asset like a factory or a it's not a, it's not it's not equity ownership. It's literally the machines or literally the ground that you plant in. So it's very, very. And my, my best resource for that environment is um, Harry Brown's book, um, uh, 
uh, called um, How to Inflation Proof Your Portfolio, which I post on my side a few times. You know, it deals with the 70s. Um, so I don't know. that I could be completely wrong. To me, there are some basic drivers of inflation. Um, one is the ability for people to borrow. And that's where the interest rate mechanism kicks in, but there's also a capacity question. Um, in order to chase goods as they inflate, assuming your asset earnings are not inflating, meaning you're in financial instruments that are not keeping up with inflation, or your wages are not keeping up with inflation, which may or may not be true, but you have to borrow. And so you have to look at the US government and its ability to borrow and say, the reason why I believe, the reason why we had inflation is not because of quantitative easing during the um, COVID crisis, but because we handed the treasury, handed money to people um, and those people bought stuff with it. Um, and so it was facilitated and thus didn't have an impact on financial assets by quantitative easing, but quantitative easing enough alone isn't enough to cause inflation. And you can see that because of the history since the, gen the financial crisis, we didn't have inflation while we bought it on the bonds. It was the fiscal spending that does it. And you have to make a judgment on whether that fiscal spending is sustainable. There's lots of conversation about the fiscal cliff. There's certainly um, low odds that um, gridlock will be broken. Um, it could be even worse um, at the midterms. The fiscal side is not going to generate additional spending. So that comes from corporates, um, which may need to spend on wages and individuals. Um, but those conditions to me are not likely to result in significant borrowing. Then there are larger demographic issues. Um, the population is, is rising at a slowing rate globally and even in the United States. There's immigration, um, which has become more restrictive everywhere around the world, resulting in individual countries seeing um, small population growth or decline in some cases. Um, and those are needed for localized inflation. Um, there is one thing that causes inflation that's very reliable, and that is um, the failure of the fiat currency. Um, and that, that could be what um, could drive inflation long term for the United States. I strongly doubt it. There are lots of people out there who've come from countries that had large external debts, whether it's the Weimar Republic or um, in post-war, uh, uh, post-World War I, or emerging markets where there was significant external debt, which killed a country's um, abilities to and leaving them only currency devaluations. Um, I don't see uh, currency devaluation as the, the end state for fiat, um, though I do own gold. Um, so those are the three drivers, population, ability to lever up and spend, and um, currency devaluation that create long-term inflation. And, I don't think those are in the offing. And more, more relevantly, the Fed is on the job. Um, so, and then there's the idea of transitory. And, and 
2021, I wrote that uh, inflation was going to be likely transitory. I wrote it in February after the last inflation scare um, in March of 2021. Um, I wanted to get ahead of that. And, you know, there's this base effect thing, which I think um, the Fed, Powell in particular, overplayed his hand saying that that's all it was. Um, base effects is a one-year phenomena, and actually base effects are now working in our favor in terms of reducing inflation. That wasn't it. People wanted to spend. They got out of the house and they had money and they spent money. And so the question, and then we had supply problems. And um, my view is supply ultimately resolves itself. And so my prediction in 2021, um, a year ago, was that um, by the end of 2022, Inflation would start trending down. Um, I predicted inflation peaked um, on a month-over-month basis last December. Um, I think I'm going to be wrong on that, actually, because of the crazy um, spike in commodities this this month. Um, but year-over-year, I predicted would peak in the first quarter, and I still believe that to be true. But it's not going to come down fast. It's going to come down slow. It's going to come down, you know, break-evens are set at around 6% right now for this year, and a little over 45 for next year, and uh, for, for the total of two years. Um, inflation expectations are going to take their time coming down, uh, but they're going to come down, and they're going to come down for the secular reasons. Um, and so my long-term outlook, which I continually post, is that um, given the high indebt- indebtedness of the world and uh, demographics, and um, real no, really no um, productivity innovation that's creating an outsized increase in productivity, but growth and inflation are going to be um, in a downtrend, a secular, continue to be in a secular downtrend. And so I think we just re- return to that trend over the next few years. It's a question of how fast and whether that's transitory or not, that's for somebody else to judge. Um, but you know, that's sort of my long-term outlook. And does, I know, you had a report out in March, maybe that was the one you were referring to, where you expressed a very bullish view on bonds. It's funny, back then I, I was actually getting very bearish on bonds. Little did I know I actually picked the absolute uh, top in yields pretty much. Um, infl- is inflation inflationary? Does high prices destroy demand? Or does it cause, which is deflationary, or does it cause people to have you know, uh, switch jobs and ask for ask for more money and, and earn more. The former is is very deflationary, and the the latter is inflationary. How how do you think that the not only the year and a half inflationary story that we've seen, you know, uh, speculations about secular tr- uh, inflation, but also the extremely sharp and acute spike in inflation because of the commodity issues and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, how did how should how does that impact your longer term outlook on inflation? And I also noted that you said the ten year inflation break even the the market's pricing in uh, non arbitrage condition for inflation for the next ten years is about three percent, which is sixty basis points higher than it was about a month ago. Does that make sense to you? Because don't get me wrong, you know if you haven't told already, I'm a little bit of an inflationista, but the fact that we have this record high inflation. Doesn't it actually make infl- forward inflation over the next 10 years like less likely? Uh, gosh. Um, so I'll start with the last thing, which is the 10-year um, break-even. Um, the 10-year break-even is high, as you said, but the five-year, five-year forward break-even is actually a pretty anchored. 
Um, and so what I mean by that is the reason why tenure is up so much is because two years up so much. So it's, um, you know, if five year, five year forward was up a lot, you'd be more concerned. Most of the inflation curve is being effect, affected by a steep, in, a, in a, a bigger inversion in the inflation curve. Um, you mentioned um, how does inflation work and no one really knows, but let me just say this. Um, the um, psychology of inflation is um, what I described in Brazil, which is if you're in a position where any dollars you get, you know you have to convert into goods before they, their price rises, you're in an you're in a, um, inflation spiral. Um, the second is, uh, but the, coming back, um, you asked whether inflation is a tax or a, um, or, or, or it creates further inflation through some mechanism. And what I would describe is that supply shock inflation is a tax. It reduces aggregate demand for goods because, um, and thus ultimately leads to a deflation um, and more relevantly bad individual personal circumstances where you're not getting a wage increase um, and you are paying more for price for goods. And so you have to experience austerity, which is painful. Um, so that's a tax. Um, and so some of that's happening now. I don't know how much some of it is. Clearly, some of it is. You know, you can't look at the supply chain and, um, disruption and say that it's not a supply issue. It's partly a supply issue. But then there's the demand side. And that, that's a spiral that can be um, self-reinforcing, if not controlled. And so you say, well, um, you know, are prices going up? Do you have to demand... Um, um, uh, higher wages. That's not how it works. Prices are going up because if it's a demand-driven price increase, prices are going up because um, companies are able to increase prices. What does that mean for profits? That means profits are going up. What does that mean for their desire to build their company by hiring another worker to make another piece of uh, another um, piece to fill the demand? Whatever it is, widget to fill the demand. To, and so that that the, the self-reinforcing bit is that because the consumer is paying a higher price, that flows back into the company's profits and their desire to seize on that opportunity. And the only way they can seize on it is buying the, their input costs for their product. They can't create product out of nothing. You know, whatever service, if you're a service provider, you need to actually add another guy to, if haircut prices are going up, you actually have to add another chair. Um, and so you got to find somebody and that person, that next person comes at a higher wage. Um, and so um, to the extent that keeps going without out of control, um, that's why. And by the way, then the person who now has a higher paying job spends more because they now have more money in their pocket. And so that's how the wage price spiral works. It's a demand driven thing that um, was with to fill the demand. Um, you. Um, Need to hire a worker, which pays a higher wage, which fills, creates more demand. Um, and the way that breaks, and the way it breaks with, with or without the Fed, is that um, some things that you need to fill the demand, that com companies need to fill the demand, is they actually have to buy another chair 
at the haircut stand or another factory to build the widget. Um, and those things cost real money now. And you have to borrow to buy that stuff. You can't, you, you can't make, you can't buy your, phys, the, your new capacity to make goods fill demand without borrowing. And so the borrowing demand increases and that creates higher interest rates because borrow, um, supply isn't increasing necessarily and higher interest rates make it less attractive and ultimately that kills the cycle. Um, but that's just you know the way the business cycle works. If you have a Fed, they can lean against that um, because they can predict that wage price spiral and increase the interest rates to, to reduce demand. But so the simple question is demand sides, wage price spiral, needs to be controlled by increases in interest rates, whether um, organically by the market or directly by the Fed. And supply side, nobody can do anything about. That's, that's fascinating. Well, Andy, you are an incredibly uh, smart person, and I'm really lucky I got the chance to, to talk to you. Uh, people can find your work on Twitter, at DampSpring and uh, DampSpring.com. Andy, I've got a question, which is, you know, if people were to subscribe to, to DampSpring, what do you think is is sort of the field of finance that you're best at? Because, you know, you're kind of, you, you, I know you do volatility and now you do market plumbing, you do quantitative macro. Uh, like what is sort of your best? Because I, I know some people, you know, I don't know a lot of people who do so many, who wear so many hats in finance in terms of their knowledge base. So I think that's it. Um, my, value, <laughs> my value proposition is not, is, is that I have, because I've been doing this for 35 years across a variety of different worlds, um, I have a fairly unique perspective and you join me so that I can make connections that people that have had deeper but more narrow experiences. Now my, my experiences are quite deep in a number of silos, quite deep. But um, if you're following somebody who is just deep and hasn't had breath, you miss some connections. And so what I try to do, and mostly through education and um, Helping people, um, not through you know, twitchy trading calls. That's not what my service is about for any of my clients. Well, not, there's some of that, but mostly it's teaching people how to make the broader connections between what's happening in the macro economy and um, at a level deep enough to um, to not be general, so that you actually can get some insight both in the narrow and the wide. I think it's I do think it's fairly unique. I might be wrong, but I think it's fairly unique. Andy, other than reminiscences of a of a stock market operator, what's your favorite book? My favorite book is my favorite book is definitely not about finance. Um, like all these books are all cookbooks. Um, but in terms of finance, um, I, I generally like the texts and the um, and the um, like Hall, like Fabozzi, like. Um, um, I, I, some of the narratives are interesting. I like Ray's work. Um, I love Joe Wang's book. If you really want some depth on the plumbing of the Federal Reserve, that's um, Central Banking 101. Um, I like, and I like the Market Wizards series quite a bit. Um, I like, but you know, I read Murphy for technical analysis, but don't use it. Broad range. I much prefer non-fiction. Uh, Fiction versus nonfiction in general. Got it. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining Forward Guidance and thank you everyone for watching. Sure. Glad to do it.